God chose the leper when I was dead sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the leper when I was dead sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the leper. Chose the leper. God chose the leper. Chose the leper. God chose the leper. Boom, five. God chose the leper when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the leper when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the leper. Chose the leper. God chose the leper. Chose the leper. God chose the leper. Boom, five. We have a fun study this morning. This is officially the first teaching um, on this new series that uh, really happened from I wasn't in trying to figure out what was next. I wasn't out planning and prepping. Um, I was just sitting before the Lord in prayer and uh, just enjoying Him. And then all these ideas started flooding in just about um, who Jesus is. Uh, what's unique about this series that we're going to start today um, is that we're going to start going through, we're going to start to go through all the different ways the Bible communicates the character of Jesus. And so the scriptures will say things like Jesus is life, Jesus is light, Jesus is wisdom. In other words, he's described in a noun way, not an adjective, not in a way where it's like Jesus is gracious, Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind. He's described with an object or with a noun. So Jesus is peace. Jesus is hope. He's redemption. And so we'll be exploring all those different facets of um, the character and the nature of Christ um, and how that relates to us. Yes, there's deep theology in this. Yes, we're going to have a, a, a grander view of Christ. And at the end of the day, we're going to plug that knowledge into, I guess, the slot it belongs in. Uh, so that we know how to apply this truth. How does it practically affect my life? So I think we have as much people as we're going to have. So let's get to it. Uh, today we're talking about how Jesus is righteousness. He's righteousness. He's not just righteous, uh, but he's actually the, the substance of righteousness itself. And we should probably define that term. Um, I spent spent a little bit kind of searching out what how to pinpoint righteousness. Because everyone kind of knows, uh, has an idea of what the term means. When you hear righteousness, you're like, I, yeah, I, get, I, have, I have an understanding of what that means, I guess. Like, I can think of scriptures that use the word righteousness. But um, the word righteousness, a lot of the times, refers to justice. And it, has, it carries a dimension of upright morality. In other words, this is acceptable. This is meeting God's standard. This is upright um, sometimes it refers to moral perfection. And so I think righteousness at the end of the day is, 
is to be acceptable and pleasing to God, to meet his standard. And justice is one of those things that pleases God. Uh, moral perfection, uprightness, that's the, that's the idea of, of righteousness. I don't think you can define it in any one-dimensional way. Where it's like, well, righteousness is, here's the one word. There's so many kind of facets of what righteousness will look like playing out in a life or what God sees as righteous. But no matter what, it's going to be what meets the standard of God. It is, it is pure, it is just, it is, it is morally perfect, it's acceptable, all these different things. And so, uh, what kind of, I guess, with the scriptures that became the, the center of this series is this verse right here, 1 Corinthians 1.30. It says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Now look at how Paul describes Christ Jesus. And again, throughout the, maybe the next couple months, few months, we'll explore all these different dimensions of Jesus. He's life, he's light, he's truth, he's righteousness, he's salvation, he's perfection, he's peace, he's hope, he's wisdom, he's grace, he's power, he's love, he's holiness, he's redemption, all these different things. Um, but today we're tackling righteousness. And how does that affect us? Well, Paul says that Jesus became to us wisdom from God. He became righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this little section right here of 1 Corinthians is going to be the main emphasis of our study. Like, I'm going to be referencing this scripture quite a bit throughout the next few months. Uh, I think it's going to take a few months to get through this series. But um, So what we're going to do is look at what scripture says about righteousness. And how Jesus fits into the slot of not just the righteous one, but righteousness Righteousness itself, moral perfection, uprightness. Uh, you can attach godliness to that. What is what is acceptable to God, what meets his standard. Um, and Jesus is that. He's the perfect human that does that. That's why his sacrifice is acceptable to the Father. That's why he's likened to Abel in Genesis, who brought an acceptable sacrifice. Jesus brings a much better sacrifice. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how the scriptures communicate Jesus as being a righteousness. Uh, then we're going to talk about how well, how does this impact us? Well, no one is righteous without God. Um, so we need someone to make us righteous. How does that happen? Um, and what does it mean that we, we are made righteous? What does it mean to walk in righteousness and all these different things? So Jeremiah 23, weirdly enough, is where I'm going to start. Jeremiah 23, let's go to the prophets. Good old Jerry is going to tell us about who is expected to come. Jeremiah's prof prophecy says, look, behold, the days are coming declares the Lord. So this is God speaking through Jeremiah. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. What does God say he's going to do? Raise up for David and his name and his lineage a righteous branch, a king, the king of Israel. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely. So remember how I said that righteousness is a lot of the times linked to justice. Um, you can't really have true righteousness without justice. But a lot of the times, righteousness is actually uh, almost synonymous with justice, how it's used. So here, it's kind of around that. It's couched around, at least Jerry is telling us that, you know, the righteousness that's coming, it's going to be executed by the king. Justice and righteousness he'll execute in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name by which he will be called. Look at the name by which he's called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. 
This seems to be more about the true king of Israel, the true seed of the woman, uh, the true king of Israel, David's you know, future descendant. This is referring to Jesus. The Lord is our righteousness. That's how he will be known. Is Jesus will be known as someone who indicates to the people and is a reflection of the fact that God is our righteousness. Uh, you fast forward a bit, Jerry's prophecy, 10 chapters in, it says, in those days at that time, I will cause a righteous branch. This is God speaking. And we haven't gotten to the New Testament yet because we're just working with what the Old Testament gives us, to the prophecy of Jesus coming. So prophetically, Jeremiah declares by the word of the Lord that God is going to cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. He shall execute justice and what? Righteousness. Righteousness in the land. So that's why you can't separate justice and righteousness. Someone who rules unjustly or there's injustice on the part of someone, they're not truly being righteous. Right? You can't separate the two. They go together. Isaiah's prophecy, um, prophetically, he declares, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. No matter what, Isaiah and Jeremiah both are connecting the future righteous branch and the righteous king of Israel to David, the stump of Jesse. Because once God comes in through Babylon and decimates Jerusalem and removes them from the land, well, it's almost like there's, there used to be a fruitful tree. Now there's just a stump that God cut down. But there is a root remaining. There is a stump there. And from that, we're going to see Jesus come out from the line of David. And there shall come a branch from his roots. Whose roots? Jesse. So the Messiah, the King of Israel, has to be connected physically to David, has to descend from Jesse, the father of David. Right? And he shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now watch, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So fearing the Lord doesn't seem to be some like terrible, horrific thing that we like run away from. His delight, it's his delight to fear in the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see. He doesn't judge according to the flesh like most people do. Or decide disputes by what his ears hear. No, with righteousness he shall judge the poor. So justice, again, linked to righteousness. And he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's why we see in Revelation, Jesus come, a sword of his mouth decimating his enemies. Because it's his word that actually brings the judgment upon his enemies. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Look at verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. So this becomes a part of him. He's wearing it like an emblem. And faithfulness will be the belt of his loins. So the coming king of Israel, who's going to descend from David, has to be a king that executes perfect justice. And righteousness is communicated alongside that. Isaiah 24, also another prophetic word. And I'm just trying to like stir the pot a little and get you to realize that Jesus coming as our righteousness, that's not, no, that's not a new idea. That's what God declared all throughout the Old Testament through the prophets. That whoever the righteous king of Israel would be, he'd have to descend from David. He'd have to execute justice. And that's why we see in Hebrews chapter 1 that the true king of Israel, Jesus, the king of kings, I mean, he's, the scepter of his kingdom is one of uprightness, righteousness. So Isaiah 24, 16 says, From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. 
Now here, God is the one that's being referred to as the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. Now Jeremiah, or Isaiah is looking at the destruction that's come upon Israel. And he's going, woe is me. Like, this is terrible. Traitors have betrayed with betrayal. The traitors have betrayed. In other words, he's looking on Israel and going, you guys have become the new Egypt. You guys have become the new enemy of God. Like, you guys are still like his chosen nation for sure. But you have adapted the ways of the pagan nations. And you've essentially become a representation of what, you know, Egypt represented or Babylon represented or any other pagan enemy nation that God wipes out and or brings judgment on Israel becomes likened to them. They, they betrayed their God. But, right, from the ends of the earth, Isaiah hears songs of praise of glory to who? To the righteous one. Now, this is very important that God here is referred to as the righteous one. And um, I'm not going to go there, actually. We'll just stop there, that he's referred to as the righteous one. The reason I say that is because now let me take you to 1 John 2. Okay. Not only is the king of Israel, the future descendant of David, referred to as, you know, uh, he's going to have righteousness. Like he's marked by justice and righteousness. But 1 John 2, 1, speaking of Jesus, who is the, the one who shoots out of the stump of David, it says, if anyone sins, 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, we have an advocate, a representative, a defense attorney, someone pleading our case and defending us, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the what? The righteous. The righteous. You might say the righteous one. That's why 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us, and let me go back there just to reference it for you. 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us that Jesus became to us righteousness. Because he is the righteous one. He's the source of righteousness. He's, he has the validation from the Father to make those righteous who have faith in his name. And so Jesus is referred to as the righteous. The righteous. Seems to be an exclusive term. In other words, there doesn't seem to be anyone else in existence that has the authority and the power to declare or make someone righteous by their own inherent righteousness. Jesus is that. He's the substance of righteousness and uprightness, and moral perfection, and justice. You know, interestingly enough, Hebrews chapter 7 speaks of Melchizedek, who is a mysterious kingly figure that we see in the story of Abraham. And we don't know anything about him. Everyone speculates. Everyone has an idea. He's Jesus, uh, you know, it's a Christophany. It's Jesus pre-incarnate. Uh, someone else will say, well, he's just a mysterious king that's likened to Jesus. Others will make the case that maybe he's some like... Uh, subdivine ruler that was was prophetically declaring Jesus. We don't really know. All we know is the author of Hebrews makes a strong connection between Jesus and Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem or Jerusalem, and he's the priest of the Most High God. So he's a king and a priest. That's unique up to that point. And you can argue that Abraham was, or um, Adam was created to be king of the earth under the authority of God and to be a, a priest in service to God, cultivating and, and, and making uh, more image bearers to glorify God in the earth. You can make a case for that. But no matter what, Melchizedek is called the king of Salem and the priest of, of the true and living God, the Most High. And he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Remember when Abraham went out and he rescued Lot, his nephew, from 
huge old war that was happening between all these nations. Abraham goes out like you do on a Saturday, takes a few of his boys and actually wins the war and brings back Lot and all the possessions that were taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, so Abraham apportions a tenth part of everything to who? To Melchizedek. Now look at the name of Melchizedek. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is king of peace. That's why my son's name is Salem. Because I like that name. Peace. Before it was Jerusalem, it was Salem. Salem means peace. So king of righteousness, Melchizedek here, is referred to as king of peace and king of righteousness. And the author of Hebrews is making Melchizedek and Jesus so closely connected uh, in chapter 7. Not that there's the same person. Some would argue that. That's fine. I don't, I don't believe it is. But the point is that righteousness is what he's represented as, the king of that. So Jesus, if he's going to be the true king of Israel, the true seed of the woman, the descendant of David that rules over the earth, he has to be the king of righteousness. He has to. Justice is a part of his lineage, a part of his kingdom, who he is. So Jesus, in other words, part of Jesus being our righteous one is that he executes justice in a way in other words, part of the process by which he makes us righteous, it includes justice. Jesus doesn't bypass the system in order to make us righteous. He does it justly, uprightly, in a way that's acceptable to God. That's why the sacrifice of Jesus is brought to the Father on behalf of us. And he's our advocate. He's our high priest. And he brings to the Father a sacrifice that actually atones for all of humanity's sin and pays all of our sin debt. It's by justice not only that he is righteous and he executes righteousness, right? And he lives righteous, but he makes us righteous in a just way as well. In Acts chapter 3, uh, now that Jesus has gone, ascended to the Father, and the apostles are out expanding the kingdom, um, this is what I believe Peter accuses the religious leaders and the unbelieving Jews of doing. He says, you denied the holy and righteous one righteous one. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Remember when Pilate goes, hey, do you guys want Jesus, the king of Israel? Or do you want me to release uh, Barabbas? And they go, we want Barabbas. You chose a murderer and you denied or rejected the righteous one. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So Peter refers to Jesus as what? Well, in 1 Corinthians 1, we saw he's righteousness, like he's the substance of it. And here he's again called the righteous one. But if you go to Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy says that um, the nations of the earth ultimately are going to give glory to the righteous one. Who's that? The true and living God of Israel. Now, now you might say, well, by if Jesus being the righteous one, by extension of the father who sent him, any glory he receives, it's reflected back to the father. Sure, I'll give you that. But no matter what, he is called the righteous one. Whereas in Isaiah, and that doesn't seem to be like a term that's thrown around loosely. It doesn't seem to be like you can just see Chucky walking down the street and be like, righteous one, righteous one, like that, that exclusive title and label, it belongs rightly only to God to be the righteous one. Now we are righteous in the sight of God and we are righteous because of Jesus, which we'll get to. 
but no one else carries that inherent righteousness to themselves as the perfect, morally just, upright one who makes others righteous. No one else has that. That Jesus, I'm just saying, that title given to the God of Israel and Isaiah, it's given to Jesus. And this isn't the only time. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen in his fire sermon does the same thing. He says, which of the, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? There's not many. They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of who? The coming of the righteous one. If there is an exclusive title that is attributed only to the God of Israel, yet Jesus carries that, you fill in the gap. You figure out what that means. So uh, Stephen here, going, you guys killed the prophets who announced the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. That's how we know that the righteous one here is Jesus. They betrayed him and they murdered him. You who received the law as delivered by angels, and you didn't even keep it. And that's what really causes them to get all millennial triggered and stone Stephen. Acts twenty two fourteen. I think this is Paul. Yeah. Paul is recounting his trip to Damascus, which was just supposed to be a routine trip where you casually, you know, ask for the authority to put believers in, in prison and kill them, and he ends up encountering Jesus. And this is Paul recounting that. And he's talking about how, well, I'll just start right here. Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, he came to me. So God sent Ananias after Saul was blinded in Damascus. And standing by me, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, okay, at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, this is what Ananias says, because God commissioned him to say this. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one. Now you're getting to understand why Jesus is referred to as righteousness. So the God of our fathers appointed you, Saul, to know his will and to see the righteous one. Who did Paul see on the road to Damascus? Whether in a vision or actually with his physical eyes, who did he see? He saw Jesus. He goes, Lord, Lord, who are you? And Jesus answers and says, I'm, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And to hear a voice from his mouth. Then he'll go on to talk about how he's going to be a witness. So I'm just trying to show you that Jesus is our righteousness, our righteous one, the one who stands in the gap for us and brings an acceptable sacrifice to God that actually benefits us. Like it's so good. It can apply to anyone who has faith in his name because he is righteous. He's the righteous king and he rules in righteousness and he is perfectly upright and morally perfect and righteous and he meets the standard of God perfectly in our place. He's righteous. So what does that mean? Well, Romans 3.21. Now that we've talked about how Jesus is our righteousness, what this actually looks like fleshed out in our life, here's where we get to that part. Okay, so if you haven't been listening, actually open your ears now. Romans 3.21. It says, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now, you can argue 
that he's talking about the way to become righteous. As if Paul is saying, hey, becoming righteous doesn't happen by doing works. Becoming righteous doesn't happen by you obeying the law. God makes someone righteous outside of your own ability to fulfill the law because you never could. So now righteousness is extended to people who believe in the Son. So it's not about you fulfilling the law anymore. It's about Jesus has done that for you. And the righteousness of God, the way to become righteous, is manifested apart from the law. I would argue that's, that's totally right, 100%. But, 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 I do believe that also when he talks about the righteousness of God himself, he's not just talking about the method of righteousness. He's talking about the person of Jesus himself who has been manifested, who has come from heaven, who has, you know, been revealed to humanity as the righteousness of God himself. And then you can say, well, and Jesus is the method of righteousness. You don't become righteous in the sight of God without Christ. You don't. It's impossible. So, yes, I, I, I do agree that he's talking about the method. I also do believe he's talking about the substance and the person who is righteousness being Jesus. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. There is no distinction all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this is where we get into how, why does it matter that Jesus is perfectly just and righteous and morally perfect? Why does that matter that he is our righteousness? Because no one meets the standard of God. The perfect standard of God is what? Perfect righteousness, moral perfection, never failing, never making a mistake. You want to get into his kingdom? Just go and live perfect. Good luck. It's impossible. So if the law and the standard of righteousness is something we cannot meet, then what Jesus has to do is he has to meet that for us because we have all sinned. And you know what we all fall short of? The glory of God, the perfect standard of righteousness. We fall short, not just of who Jesus is, but of what the law demands us to be and ultimately what the perfect human is supposed to be. We fall short. We don't meet it. And so Jesus comes, and this is where we get Romans 3, 9, and 10. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off because we have the law and we're circumcised? No, not at all. Like if you're a physical Israelite, Paul would like to argue and say that physical ethnicity does nothing for your spiritual condition. We have already charged that all Jews and Greeks, whether you're Jewish or not, all people are under sin. Everyone's made mistakes. Everyone's failed. You fail once, James says you violated the whole law. So none is righteous. Not one. You know who's not righteous? Every single person on the planet without Christ. That's who's not righteous. No one is. No one understands. No one seeks God. And that's hard news. And no one wants to hear that. That is hard to hear. I get that. That's like chalkboard, nails on a chalkboard when it comes to saying this in public. People don't want to hear it. So no one is righteous. Not a single person. Where does that put all of humanity? It puts us in a bucket that's labeled, we are dead. 
Nothing we can do about it. We're on death row. Enter Jesus, okay? Enter Jesus. And let me just, before we transition to, to, to why it matters that Jesus is righteous, I'm just trying to set up, set up the, uh, the punchline where I go, Jesus is everything. Let me set that up. Romans 2.13. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the doers who will be justified. So being righteous is connected to being justified. What does justified mean? Well, it's where God declares you to be innocent of your crimes, just as if you've never sinned. He declares you to be acceptable in his, in his sight. You are justified. You are declared innocent. So, um, if you want to be righteous, it doesn't matter how much knowledge of the law you have. You have to perfectly do the law if you want to be righteous in the sight of God. And then he justifies you. Problem is, no one can do that. No one. Well, except one person who is the promised king of Israel, the true descendant of David. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus answers John the Baptist who's like, I am not going to baptize you. You are way too good for me, bro. Uh, yeah, you should be, I should be getting your autograph. And Jesus goes, hey, let it be so now. It is fitting for us to fulfill all what? All righteousness. All righteousness. So what Jesus comes to do is fulfill all the demands that God has of human beings. He comes to be what none of us ever could. He comes to do what none of us ever could. What that means is, if Jesus comes to fulfill all the righteousness and fill in the gaps of where we fall short, here's what this practically means. In Romans chapter 8, it says, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. So the law could not save. The law is just like an x-ray showing you your problem and going, see here on your sternum, that thing, that's killing you. The x-ray can't do anything to solve the problem. The doctor, however, who holds the x-ray up to you, he can find a solution and bring you into, you know, healing. He can free you from the, from the sickness and the disease. He can give you a solution. That's what God does. The law can't save you. All it does is points you to the one who can save you. The law exposes your inability and shows you where you fall short and shows you you're weak, you're sinful, you're wicked, you don't do what God demands, so you, we are all screwed. But Jesus, this is, what, this is what God does through Jesus, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, for evil, he condemns sin in the flesh. Why? Well, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit so a child of god will live according to the spirit no longer according to the flesh but how do we become righteous someone has to meet the demands of the law the law has a requirement there's a standard god has jesus meets that standard not just to be like what's up i'm perfect but to actually invite us into that. And he includes us in that. 
so that if you believe in the Son, he says, I've fulfilled the law for you so that in the sight of God, it's as if you fulfilled the law perfectly. It's as if you are perfect. It's as if you have never messed up because the identity of Jesus becomes shared with you through faith who will become born again. And so God condemns evil and sin in the flesh of his son. So sin is punished and condemned itself instead of the children of God who have faith. So the righteous requirement of the law, the perfect standard of God, Jesus comes to fulfill that in order to take on our human evil and to be punished in our place. And then the debt is paid. He dies our death and he's buried. Three days later, comes back to life. And now if you believe in him, you too can become righteous through his work. You too. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, I know people have a problem with this. Some people want to run around the translation and go, well, in the Greek, it doesn't. It, it says what it, it really means what it says. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So the one who never sinned is who? Jesus. And God makes him who had no familiar experience with sin and never sinned, he made him to be sin. So that, same language as Romans 8, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Now hold on, that seems a little different. Romans 8 said, yeah, we meet the righteous demands of the law now. Sweet, we are righteousness. Paul in this passage right here says, we have become the righteousness of God. Now that sounds a little different. That seems like a whole nother level. Like it's one thing to be like, yes, I have met God's standard. It's another thing. It's a whole nother level for God to say, you have become the righteousness of me in my son. That's why this language throws people off. They don't like the idea of Jesus in his flesh becoming in his body human evil and sin it's poured out on him so that the wrath of god and the justice of god can be poured out on jesus in our place people don't like that substitutionary atonement the language of jesus taking our place they hate it because they're prideful egotistical i don't know i don't know self-righteous but no matter what the only way for us to become acceptable in the sight of god to get into his kingdom is that someone has to take our evil upon himself. And that someone has to be perfect. He has to be righteous. He has to meet the perfect standard of God and to be the blameless, spotless lamb, like John the Baptist says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How can he take it away? He has to be blameless. He has to be perfect and righteous in order to make us righteous and to include us in that perfection because we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Uh, I believe it's 2 Corinthians 5.17 that will also say, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. How can you become new? Well, there's a transaction that has to take place. And this is the transaction, Romans 5.19. I'm just trying to see, I'm trying to show you the trade that takes place. Romans 5.19 says, As by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made what? Righteous. 
you have to be made righteous. You don't attain righteousness. You don't achieve it. You don't work for it. You don't gain it. You don't become entitled to it. Someone has to make you righteous. Someone that has the authority, someone that has the power, someone that is righteous and perfection and is perfect light, he has to make you righteous. Who does that sound like? Who has that authority to declare someone ultimately righteous at the end of their life? Well, now, but on judgment day, everyone will see, wow, they were righteous. God has that authority. God does. This is what 1 Peter 3.18 says. Christ also suffered once for sin. Okay? The righteous suffered for the unrighteous. Remember, we are the unrighteous. We do not deserve his sacrifice. We're not entitled to his love. So the righteous one, righteousness himself, came down into our world, took on flesh, and suffered for us, for his enemies. Why? So that he might bring us to God. So if you want to be brought to God, acceptable as a pleasing offering and sacrifice that meets his standards, someone has to bring you in that's worthy of being there first. And that's Jesus. He's the one that's able to stand in the presence of his Father. He's the one who came from his Father. The eternal word emanating from the Father alongside the Father so he can bring us in. He brings us to God as righteous now. And he was put to death in the flesh, right? But made alive in the Spirit. And this is why Ephesians 4, 24 can say what it says. Okay, watch. It says, put on the new self. New self. Yeah, don't you know you're given a new life when you believe? You're a new creation. New fresh start. New heart, new mind, new nature, new identity, brand new existence. So you and I have to choose to put on or live according to that new life. And that new self, which 2 Corinthians speaks of, that new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So now you can see how we can become the righteousness of God himself because the new life we're given is sourced in Jesus, right? It's, it's, it's made in the likeness of his own perfection and righteousness and holiness so that when he gives us new life, since it's coming from him, it carries his very nature of perfection and righteousness as the first resurrected human. And he gives us a new life that is fashioned uh, by the raw material of his own righteousness and perfection. So now in the sight of God, guess what we are? We are the righteousness of God because our new life, our identity and nature is in fact fashioned uh, from his own righteousness. It's the raw material God uses to make our new life in his son. Uh, Ephesians 6.14, scroll down a little bit, talks about the armor of God. And it says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of what? Of righteousness. It is your choice not to be righteous, you know, by your own efforts, but to believe and to live like you are righteous in the sight of God. It, it is our choice to daily submit to the righteousness of God and live like he says we should. It's our choice. But the breastplate of righteousness 
and being righteous, that's already who you are. So I'm not like trying to be righteous by trying to put on the breastplate. Look, I'm righteous, God. It's that you are righteous in the sight of God through faith in his son who makes you righteous. Okay, that's your identity. That's your status. But do you live according to that new identity? Do you live like that's true? Do you believe that as your living life? That's what it practically means to put on what God has made available in his son to us. Okay, so what you need to know is that Jesus being the righteous one and you becoming righteous, that happens. You, you, you are given his righteousness and you become righteous through faith. There's no other way. This is why Matthew 6, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, look, seek first the kingdom of God. Part of what it means to seek first the kingdom is to seek his righteousness, not your own, because that would be self-righteousness, right? A sense of righteousness that's rooted in me and my ability. And guess what? You can't be righteous. So seek first the kingdom. And part of what that means is you're looking to God for his righteousness that comes through faith. And all these things will be added to you. you go down to Romans 10 and it's, it's sad. This, this part is sad that there are people who don't get, they don't want the free gift of righteousness that comes in the son who is the righteous one. They don't want it. Romans 10 verse two and three. This is what Paul says about these fellow Israelites that do not believe, okay? He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for, for these Israelites is that they would be saved. He says, I, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Can you have, um, uh, I guess, a kind of mindless passion that isn't really reasonable or rooted in truth? Sure. These people are passionate. They're zealous for a version of God or for who they think God is, but it's not according to what is true knowledge. How? Well, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Now, again, don't just think, hey, this kind of perfection God gives me. Also think Jesus is righteousness. So they are ignorant of his son. And when you're ignorant of the son, you inadvertently miss out on the righteousness that he offers, right? Because you can't have righteousness without him. So righteousness, yes, is a reality, but it's also a person. Jesus, the righteousness of God, they're ignorant of him. And so therefore, they don't have his righteousness. And seeking to establish their own, like trying to become perfect on their own, trying to get into God's kingdom on their own, trying to get to heaven by living obedient and trying to never mess up, they're trying to be righteous by their own efforts. And so they did not submit to God's righteousness. You don't achieve righteousness you submit to God's righteousness by believing in his son and trusting in him alone as your own true only way into the kingdom. Look at verse four. Christ is the end of the law for what? For what? For righteousness. To everyone who believes. In other words, 
when you believe. Jesus puts a stake in the ground and says, see this? You stop here and you no longer try and become righteousness by obeying the law and doing good things. You are righteous. You are now who God says you to be. Who, is, who he's made you to be. Who he says you are. And so you can try and be morally good on your own. You can operate by your own definition of morality and own, your own standard. But you and I can't even meet our own made-up standard of morality. Like, do you make up your own standard of morality or do you submit to God's standard? Well, if you say, I don't need God to be morally good, that's fine. I don't need God to be a morally good person, that's fine. You don't even meet your own smaller standard, which is far less than what God's standard actually is. So if you want to stop all your striving and straining and working, that's what it means to believe. Is you're saying, Jesus ends my own self-righteous journey of trying to become morally good on my own. Jesus ends that. And he makes me righteous through my faith in him since he's done everything I can't. He makes me what I never could be on my own because God has granted that. God has granted that. So no longer do I look to the law to get me into heaven. I don't look to my own efforts and obedience and moral goodness and efforts. I look to Jesus. So as a believer, what it means to be the righteousness of God is that I trust in Jesus' righteousness, which is given to me. I trust in his life, death, and resurrection, which applies to me. I don't look to the law. I don't look at my performance for a sense of righteousness or security. He makes me, and it's through faith. Like, you got to get that. It's not through any other means. It's through faith, believing, trusting. Galatians 2.21, it says, I don't nullify the grace of God. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. For no, why did he come? If you and I can be perfect on our own, can reach heaven by obeying, can keep ourselves saved once we enter in on our own. If we can do that by obeying the law, why did Jesus come? It becomes pointless. Righteousness is not through your efforts. God doesn't declare you holy and perfect and righteous because of your ability to obey him. Your obedience is the fruit of Jesus' righteousness which has been given to you. Okay? So Habakkuk 2.4, all the way in the prophets, man, this is not new. It says, behold, his soul is puffed up. Referring to the, those who are against God. Their soul is puffed up. It's not upright. Remember uprightness, justice, but the righteous shall live by faith. So now that we have these different categories, there is uh, righteousness as like a, as a reality or a, let's say a label, righteousness. There's righteousness as the person, Jesus, right? There's uh, living righteously. And now there's this category of you are the righteous or you're not. You're a part of that category of people known as the righteous or you're not. And the righteous live by faith. That doesn't just mean I become righteous through faith. That's true. We're going to look at that with Abraham. But it's that now I live 
according to the faith that made me righteous in Jesus. I li- like th- that faith drives my life. You, you and I, I don't know, we live in a world where it's like, people have so watered down the gospel where it's like, you and I, all we have to do is believe and God makes us righteous and then we can go live however we want. I'll show you why that's completely wrong in a minute. Romans chapter 4 says, what does the scripture say? Now Paul is pulling from the Old Testament to make uh, a point about Christ. Abraham believed God. When did Abraham believe God? Well, when God took him out of the tent and said, look at the stars. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as those. And Abraham didn't have a child yet. Sarah was barren, a dusty womb, nothing. And he believed God in that moment. It was counted to him as righteousness. God made him or declared him righteous. So now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Like when you clock in and you get your paycheck, you don't say, thank you. You got to work for this, right? But grace doesn't operate like that. Grace is a gift. Righteousness is a gift. You didn't work for it. Jesus did. They get that. You did not work for your standing in the sight of God and your entrance into heaven. Jesus did. So now to the one who works, right? His wages are are due. He's earned it. To the one who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Well, his faith is counted as what? Righteousness. And now he's going to refer to David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Remember what... um. I believe it was uh, where are you? It said righteousness is manifested apart from the law. I forget where that is, but I quoted it earlier. Either way, it said righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. It might be Romans chapter one. Um, now Paul's saying the same thing. God counts righteousness to people through their faith apart from works. In other words, watch this. When you trust in Jesus and you go, I believe. Yes, that faith will last a lifetime. Yes, that faith will bear fruit. Yes, there will be evidence to that faith and witness to that faith. But in that moment, God declares you righteous. And when he does, he's not considering all the works you've done as to be a factor in his decision. He's not going, hmm, I don't know. You did kill nine people. I don't know. Like you've slept around quite a bit. I don't know. Like you've been a drug lord for nine years. His work, your works aren't considered by God when he declares you righteous. Because what you're trusting in is, is not your works. You're trusting in Jesus's and his perfect work overshadows and overrides all the bad works I've done so that we can say we are cleansed from sin. We are righteous in the sight of God. In fact, this is what it means to be made righteous by just believing this. He's quoting Psalm 32. Blessed, when you're righteous, you are blessed. So right now, if you're righteous in the sight of God, guess what you are? We are blessed. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are what? Covered. Blessed is that man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Whoa. So the kind of righteousness God extends to us is a kind of righteousness that overrides our sin. And you go, I don't know, that might enable sin, man. Grace ain't a license to sin. I never said it was. 
right here. Our sins are what? Forgiven. Our sins are what? Covered. God promises that the one who becomes righteous through their faith in a moment, he promises this, I will not count their sin against them. That is not just a promise for past and present sin. That is a promise for future sin. Go to 1 John. Go read that letter. For those of you that are like, I don't know, man. Kind of weird. Listen. Part of being righteous again is not just our identity and our reality and our mode of existence, but it's also the fact that my sin will never be counted against me. That is a promise that applies to the children of God. The Lord will not count your sin against you. He doesn't say your past sin. He doesn't say the sin you're really sorry for. He doesn't say your present sin. He doesn't say just your, just some sin in the future if you're like really, really sorry. He says the Lord will not count his sin against him. It's covered by the blood of the lamb. You're forgiven and cleansed by the blood of the lamb. You can participate in that and benefit from it through faith by believing or you won't. So how do you benefit from the work of Christ? Faith. First John 2, 29. This is where we get into the lifestyle, okay? We are righteous because he is righteous and he has righteously made us righteous through his death and resurrection and life, okay? So as a result, here's how someone who is righteous will live. First John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, Jesus, you can be sure everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, in layman's terms, if you are a child of God and truly righteous and you really believe, your life will not be summed up by sin and evil and darkness. The majority of your life will be spent in the direction of practicing and doing what is righteous. Okay? So the righteous those who belong to God. In other words, now righteousness connected to Jesus is not just something I inherit and I have and I am. Now, watch. Righteousness becomes a way of life. Because everyone is living out their true, I'll say it like this, everyone is living according to who they think they are. So how you live is a, is a reflection of who you think you are. And when God changes your nature completely, as a result, your life will start to change as well. So, and here's how we'll land this plane. This is a shorter, this will be, these will be shorter episodes because the series itself is like long and different attributes, but each episode and each session will probably be like an hour. So Matthew 13, this is what Jesus says. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. After those who are not righteous are thrown into the fiery furnace, the righteous, that's why the righteous will inherit the earth, the meek will inherit the earth. We're not leaving the earth and being like, I can't wait to get to heaven and stay there forever. No, God is actually coming here and his kingdom is coming here. And we're gonna dwell with him here in the new creation to rule on the earth the way we were designed to in the beginning. And the righteous will shine in the kingdom of their father, which is not just talking about eventually, it's talking about now, we as the people of God, our righteousness should be the kind of light 
that people are drawn to. When you live according to who Christ has made you to be, you will produce the fruit of righteousness. People will see that and be drawn to God. So you go down to verse 49, and Jesus says, look, so it will be at the end of the age, like when judgment takes place and everyone stands before the judgment throne of God. You ain't escaping that. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. You see it? You see it? So righteousness is not just some like, I don't know, impersonal thing I'm given by God. When you're connected to Jesus through faith, you're grafted into the Father, because he's in the Father, you are now uh, inheriting the very righteousness of your Father to the point where you are referred to as the righteous. And, you know, the evil will be thrown into the fiery furnace. But, remember, the righteous will shine in the kingdom or in the new creation. We will rule with God. Who will be left on the new earth? Or who will be a part of the new earth? The righteous. Second Peter 3.13, it says, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which what? In which righteousness dwells. What will be uh, a defining characteristic of the new creation? Righteousness dwells. Justice reigns. Love is just flowing all over the place. Righteousness and upright living, perfection unto God for his glory. Righteousness will now dwell in the new earth. We'll end with this. I think this is a cool way to end. But that will be ushered in only after this verse takes place. Revelation 19.11. John says, hey, I saw heaven opened. You know, like you do on a Monday morning. I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called. Like this is who he is. This is his title. He's called faithful. He's called true. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. So now the culmination of Jesus's righteousness in the narrative of scripture is that his righteousness ends in perfect judgment. Separating the righteous from the unrighteous, separating the um, you know, the light from the darkness, separating those who belong to him from those who don't. And he makes a clear delineation. His judgment is just, it is righteous, he is faithful, and he is true. But also, the righteousness of Jesus, him being righteousness itself, involves destroying the wicked and removing what doesn't belong from God's creation. So, Jesus really is righteousness in his judgments, in his life, in his words, in his identity, in his character, in his work. He is righteousness. Righteousness. And you and I can enjoy that and participate in that and become the righteousness of God through him who is righteous. That's the only way. Or you'll be thrown, cast out, just like Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden if you don't trust in Christ for righteousness and you go and try and do your own thing and you essentially stomp on Christ and treat him as nothing, 
you will be removed from God's creation the same way Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. It's just how it works. So, that's a good place to end, isn't it? It's a fun place to end. If you guys didn't know, I say this every time, this is Above Reproach Ministry. And you can find everything you want in life at AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have tons of free resources. I don't want to expand that. I wanted to this. We have tons of free resources. Free stuff right here. Free devotional studies throughout the week you can read. Free Bible study skills courses if you want to learn how to read the Bible. Free Bible study sheets. I release one every month uh, to give you almost like a, a cheat sheet for when you read certain books of the Bible. I've only done Matthew so far. We have free Bible study workshops, real-time examples of how to read the Bible. We have our online church through the Discord app. You can download it on your phone. Click the link right here on the website. All these links are found in the description of this YouTube video as well as on TikTok in my profile. Uh, you can get a copy of my book, Fruitful. It teaches you the abundant, uh, the essentials, essential keys to living the most abundant, satisfying Christian life. Get it on Amazon or on my website. Um, it's more of a discipleship tool and tool and hopefully to give believers uh, the, the knowledge and understanding that most of the church just doesn't have. I don't know why. Uh, believe me, I spent lots of years in youth ministry looking at that half in real time going, wow, how do you guys not know this? Like, uh, not being rude, like, this is, this is foundational. So, um, if you want to give to this ministry, our mission here is to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. Everyone's going to teach in some capacity with your life, individually, discipleship, with groups, from a pulpit, and everyone is, however that works out, and everyone's going to live the truth of God. So I want to resource the church, build up people, disciple, make leaders. And all these resources are free to everyone around the planet, completely free, because of generous supporters like you. So if you want to join in and support what God is doing here, this is my, my full-time job. The way I support my wife and two kids, my only job, um, is what God has called me to. So if you want to get behind what we're doing, you can read some testimonies, or you can give one time right here um, through your debit or credit card. You can give through PayPal. Uh, we have Cash App, we have Venmo. Um, you can give on a monthly basis through Patreon. So you can give monthly for $4, $10, $50. And there are a bunch of exclusive benefits for that. You can purchase some church merch, Above Reproach Apparel, and just support what we're doing. And all the proceeds and everything that comes in goes straight into making all this content and making this possible. So um, thank you guys who have really invested into this, whether you pray, whether you're in the Discord, whether you're helping out in the, in the small groups or helping in girls' Bible study or whatever it is. If you give financially, thank you for everything that you guys do to make this possible. All right, that's it for today. Um, there will be no live stream tomorrow or Friday, but there will be a live stream Monday where we will continue the series on Jesus Is. And uh, I haven't picked out what we're going to talk about yet, but I have an idea. All right, so go visit AboveReproachMinistry.com. Uh, click all the links in the YouTube description, all of them. And I'll see you guys later.